Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnelly. This is the first episode of OT Uncorked to feature a non-OT guest, and I know you're going to love it. I'm honored that my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Heather Evans, a licensed social worker, joined me for a conversation about sex trafficking and trauma healing. I've known Heather for almost 15 years now. In high school, she was one of my youth group leaders at church. And even at that time, when sleep was more of a precious commodity than it is even now, the only reason I would ever get out of bed early was to meet up with Heather before school started, always at the Coopersburg Diner. She is an incredible listener, one of the wisest people I know, and brings a sincere heart to everything she does. As you listen to this conversation, I really hope you get the same feeling of warmth and compassion and desire for justice that Heather brings to everyone she meets and all the work she's involved in. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege to be with you, Miranda. My name is Dr. Heather Evans, and I am a licensed clinical social worker. I live in the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania region, where I am the director of Evans Counseling Services, which is a group practice of myself and four other associates that provide individual and family therapy in the mental health realm. I'm also the co-founder of VAST, which stands for Valley Against Sex Trafficking, and that's an organization that was started with me and one of my colleagues almost 10 years ago now to address human trafficking in the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania region. So I'm still involved with that as the board chair and providing some awareness and education in the region and beyond. I'm also an associate professor of Global Trauma Recovery Institute, which is out of Missio Seminary. And so the thread that kind of runs through all of the things that I do is trauma. And my work with Global Trauma Recovery Institute is more on a global level. So it includes co-teaching courses for individuals who want to understand more about global trauma healing and how to enter into another culture and, and hopefully do it effectively. And it also includes working with people worldwide, mainly right now in the country of Rwanda, to equip and train trauma healing caregivers there. Those are a few things about what I do and who I am. Thank you. There's so much I want to ask you about with all of your work, and it's been really exciting to kind of observe what you've been doing for so many years since we actually grew up in the same town and you're my youth leader. So I've known you since I was probably in middle school and just have seen how your career has evolved and just the heart you've developed um, for working with and empowering people who have um, histories of trauma. And before we get into all of that, because there's so much I want to ask you, um, tell me about what you're drinking today while we talk. I totally and had no wine. And so I am therefore drinking an orange pineapple sparkling water. But I will say that that goes along with the theme of my favorite kind of wine to drink is a sparkling wine. So sparkling water today in lieu of sparkling wine. Sparkling wine tonight. Um. (laughs) Yes. I'd like to start by learning a little bit more about what drew you to working with survivors of trauma. And before we get into that, too, I just want to say I really do want to honor the experiences and voices of the individuals who've experienced this trauma. And I really don't always have the right words. So if it's okay with you, um, I would really appreciate if you would just correct me if I pose a question that's worded in a way that doesn't um, honor the, the individuals that we're speaking about or these experiences. Um, otherwise, I will never learn. So I'm very open to you correcting me, and I hope that you will as we go through this. Very good. Okay. I will do my best. 
So yeah, you ask a good question and what drew me towards that work. And I would say um, the work found me. I'm a social worker, I'm a Christian, and those things are very much um, and very much inform my identity and the way I view the world and my involvement in the world. And so being in a counseling practice, you see a little bit of anything and everything. And over the years, more and more cases of, of, of trauma, specifically sexual abuse, came through my doors. And it caused me to say, this needs to be the thing that I become an ongoing student of and the thing that I go down into to learn more about. And so because of that, my work and my clinical practice, particularly with sexual trauma, that's how I also started to learn more about human trafficking and heard about it and just said, okay, as again, as a social worker, a concerned citizen, I need to understand what this means. And it, it captivated my heart. The more I learned, the more I knew I needed to do something about it. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So for a long time, I was just kind of in a learning phase alongside a friend and colleague of just becoming more equipped, not knowing what we were going to do. And a, t a time came when we knew we needed to move out of that learning phase and into taking action. And that's when we, we formed the organization Valley Against Sex Trafficking in hopes of raising awareness and also providing resources for survivors. But it, to answer your, your question, I would say it definitely found me and really came out of my heart and my care for people and my care for justice. But because when something calls you, you know, you're just you're compelled towards it in a way that you can't deny. And that is that was my experience. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned this uh, learning phase translated into taking action by founding VAST. And something that really strikes me is how much your work and the work of VAST and all the many people that are part of that organization have has just really opened the eyes of the people in the Lehigh Valley. So like I said, for, for the listeners, um, Heather and I grew up in the same area in the Lehigh Valley. And personally, just especially the town that we lived in um, is just so wonderful and so lovely and quaint. And there's so many wonderful people. And I felt very safe always. And mm -hmm. I still do feel safe when I'm there. But I think that a lot of your work has just opened up my eyes and the eyes of many people in our community that the, these safe bubbles that we live in are, I don't know how to say this without sounding kind of negative, but, but there's a lot going on behind the safety that we are experiencing in our own personal first person perspectives of what's happening in our lives. You know, like there's so much happening in our communities that if we are turning a blind eye to, we are just missing opportunities to draw to light these just horrors and these evils. And, and we just, we just need to support these people who are victims. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I just to say your work has really influenced, I think, all of us in our community to really just open our eyes and see that there's a lot more happening behind the scenes. And um, this isn't a foreign issue. This is close to home and it's in our communities. Absolutely. And that was exactly my experience when I was learning about it. It was more what was happening worldwide, which I had a concern for, but at the time said, well, I'm not going to relocate to India or Thailand or one of these countries where it seemed to be most prevalent. And then I learned more what it looked like in the United States and that it's happening in every state, in every region. And I knew that our region was missing that because I was missing that. As a social worker, I knew that I, it was misidentified or perhaps people had already been slipping through the cracks and were not appropriately seen and intervened in the way that they deserved. And so that's when, as you're saying, I knew that 
I would be complicit if I turned a blind eye and didn't do something mm-hmm. with the experience, with the knowledge and the training that I was receiving, that I needed to do something to take action. And that's what's been so beautiful about the model of our organization is that we really want to equip and mobilize the community that anybody in mm-hmm. any sphere of influence can use their particular discipline, their their particular corner of influence, their particular gifts and skills to make a difference in whatever issue, in this particular issue, in the issue of human trafficking. But really in in any area, there are so many different ways people can get involved um, according to their season of life and their profession or their identity. I love that. That's so empowering. And and I think that's going to kind of be a thread in this conversation, particularly knowing that this audience is mostly occupational therapists and occupational therapy students. I mean, what is within our wheelhouse that we can be supported? But first, we have to learn. And so this is for, for me and hopefully for a lot of other people, kind of that first step of learning, just so we can start to have these ideas of what down the road we might be able to take action on. For those who this is a completely new topic, could you actually kind of define for us what human trafficking is? And then you you also mentioned that it looks a little, maybe it looks a little different in the United States. And, and what does it look like here? What is the picture of human trafficking that you've kind of started to see and put together? So human trafficking, in short, I mean, is not a new issue, but it's newly defined since the year 2000. And how that definition has been changed over the years, revised over the years to be more effective. But it's when an individual is brought into the labor or sex industry through force, fraud, or coercion. There's a lot more nuances, but just for the sake of really gaining a general understanding of what it is, through force, fraud, or coercion, a person is obtained, harbored, transported into the, to the labor industry or the commercial sex industry. Our organization addresses really uh, training on both, but really focuses on sex trafficking because it is the most prevalent and it is the most nuanced or invisible, you would say. I will add something to the definition, and that is that if someone is under the age of 18, you, you don't need to prove force, fraud, or coercion. So if an individual is identified in the commercial sex industry, she's in prostitution and she's only 16, by definition, you don't need to prove that she was forced into that by a trafficker. She's considered a victim merely by her age. So in terms of what it looks like in the USA, um, it's really individuals in the commercial sex sex industry who are there through force, fraud, or coercion or under the age of 18. That could be in massage parlors. That could be in internet exchanges of prostitution. That could um, could be happening in strip clubs. It could be happening in pornography. Really need to look at that for force, fraud, or coercion. Um, in someone in the commercial sex industry. In your work through these different sort of avenues, you've kind of carried out this mission. How do you approach healing when people have experienced trauma? Are there particular frameworks or just general kind of concepts that guide your practice? Yes, there. I would say there are a few Uh, principles that guide my practice. First of all, there's a term called complex trauma, which is not in the diagnostic manual, but it is a term that really accurately describes the type of trauma that's involved with with sex trafficking. Complex trauma was coined by a woman named Judith Herman, a man named Bessel van der Kolk, Christine Courtois, other individuals who really studied that, that there are some types of trauma that go beyond a one-time event. And that's not to say that a one-time event is not life-shattering, but trauma that is interpersonal, premeditated, 
repetitious in nature, there's a different way that that impacts an individual. So complex trauma impacts an individual in five different ways, emotion regulation, attention or consciousness, relationships, perception, physiological symptoms, and beliefs. And that is definitely a phrase that helps me understand the form of trauma. And then there's this three-phase model that was made popular by Judith Kerman, Bessel van der Kolk, and others, which talks about addressing trauma through safety and stabilization. First, a phase that you're really helping them just get safe and stable, safe physically, as well as mentally, emotionally, relationally. The next stage would be memory work, helping them kind of work through their trauma narrative and kind of um, address their story, verbalize their story in a way that makes meaning out of it. And finally, reintegration, which is the more, how now shall I live? How do I enter into relationships in a safe way? How do I, for a trafficking survivor, how do I reintegrate into the community in a way that I'm empowered and equipped and, and living an independent, sustainable life? But I would say there are a couple of other things that really guide my thoughts as I work with trauma. One would be a systems approach, which is a social work term. And um, I think I, I, I don't know a lot about occupational therapy. You can you can um, fill in the gaps for me. But I think that that very much there's ways of thinking that, that line up with social work thinking. So the systems theory is that we don't just work with the individual. We look at the whole system. We look at their environment and all of the systems that that person, that individual is a part of. And we're helping them and addressing them in that comprehensive systemic way. So we have to look at it in that way. We also have to look at them in a client-centered way, which would mean I don't come into a trafficking survivor saying you are a victim that is in need of rescue and in, in need of my pity. And I tell them what they need and I do it for them. And I feel really, really good about it. It's coming alongside them, identifying their strengths, asking them, what do they want? What do they need? And empowering them to come out of their situation in such a way that they really take ownership mm -hmm. versus I get all the credit as the savior and the hero. The final thing that really guides my form of, of trauma healing, and again, there's a lot, but this is these are just the key things that I think about. Uh, Diane Langberg is someone who's written a lot about trauma worldwide. And she talks about how trauma healing is the opposite of the trauma experience. She says that trauma takes away voice, it renders one powerless and it disturbs and disrupts relationship. So trauma healing has to be the opposite. It's a restoration of voice, a restoration of power, and it's a restoration of voice and power in the context of community, safe healing relationships. It's just a phrase that really is logical and makes sense. And it's a framework that can apply to really any interaction we have with someone who's experienced trauma in any discipline that idea of trauma healing being the opposite of the trauma. Thank you for sharing that. It is really cool to see overlap between occupational therapy and social work. And I think that client-centeredness, the systems approach, many of our theories and frameworks do come out of systems theory. And so I do think there's a lot that we can um, maybe collaborate on and understand about each other's disciplines. And I think there definitely is an area for OT to uh, support these individuals. I just don't quite know what that is yet. And I don't think there's a lot of work out there. So I'm really excited to keep mm -hmm. kind of diving into these and see uh, where we can kind of support these individuals. So me too. I'm looking forward to continuing this discussion with you because I think it's very much an untapped partnership. And I'm hoping that this will only be the beginning of more, more networking and collaboration. Yeah, I hope so too. 
I, I'm curious about a little bit more about what your experiences have been like partnering um, with these individuals who are survivors of particularly, I guess, sex trafficking, because I think that's kind of the, the focus of our conversation today, even though I know you work with individuals who've experienced uh, complex trauma in, in lots of different settings. What would you say are some of the some of the challenges of working with these individuals? Not, and to clarify, I don't mean the individual being challenging, but I guess kind of personally and professionally, what are some of the challenges of really um, building trust and partnering with survivors? It's a really good question. And it's a weighty question um, because it just, it takes me back to so many different situations where there are many, many challenges. So you have an individual who is separated from a trafficker and maybe she's separated from a trafficker through law enforcement. Maybe she finds her way leaving, has nothing and needs everything. She, we've had individuals who come to us and they had one bag or they've left with nothing. They may not have an ident- any identification any longer. They may not have medical benefits. They may have a drug addiction that sadly was formed during their time of being, uh, being trafficked and the trafficker used a substance as a form of control. They may have um, limited to no education, a ton of resilience, a lot of courage and strength and um, ability to survive and ability to navigate difficult situations. but lacking a resume of anything that they can put on their resume. They may even have a criminal record for charges that were ensued during their time of being trafficked. They may have lost friends and family. They may also have a confusing trauma bond relationship with the trafficker because many traffickers, their main tool is a relationship. They form trust. They may even declare love and they may um, have sexual exchanges with that individual and they, they kind of pose as a boyfriend or a love figure, which is complicated because they're also exploiting them, taking money. Um, Perhaps there's physical and sexual and violence involved. So there may be confusion. All of that combined with the complex trauma that I've already mentioned. And so their brains and bodies are in survival mode and they need anything and everything. And so you can only imagine from what I've just said that some of the challenges are just all of that, getting them the resources that they need limited resources and services, um, sometimes difficulty navigating services. So for example, somebody who wants to get into rehab, but she has no money, she has no identification, she has no insurance. So, um, and then the county rehabs require that you have a mailing address within your county. Now, what do we do? So we have had to collaborate and navigate and and find ways around some of those difficult and tricky situations and really develop a lot of networking relationships and a lot of resources and even even resources that will be willing to offer pro bono legal services, for example, um, because it's just so complicated and they need so much. Um, So I would say that that is those that describe some of the challenges any trauma healing process is long, slow, and repetitious in nature. Uh, most often, individuals may have times where they return to the life or they return to trafficking um, and are in and out for a period of time before they're really gone. And again, they, they carry with them layered impact of trauma, including shame. Shame that tells them that I don't belong in this world anymore. I don't fit in with these people. And I'm only worth my, you know, my body being used as a commodity, as an object. So 
those are just a few of the examples of a lot of needs, a lot of need for networking and resources, and then the the layered complex trauma that goes along with those physical needs. Thank you for sharing that. I think this just, um, it's so helpful to hear you talk and share your experiences because, you know, I think we can see statistics that are alarming and we know there's a problem, but until there's a story behind the statistic, I think it doesn't always get to our heart. And I think that's where a lot of us are changed. It, It also seems that in your work, it's not just working with survivors, but it's also working with communities and law enforcement, like you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about what that work has looked like? You know, for example, one thing that struck me was that to get into rehab, you need to have like a mailing address, for example. And that is something I'd imagine that the organization that set that standard just kind of wasn't thinking or didn't quite understand the the kind of the population that they were aiming to help. So how do you work with kind of navigating those relationships and pointing out ways in which they're actually preventing help and care? Yes. Relationships are everything and, and really being um, enduring until you find, we call them champions in, in different spheres. So for example, in law enforcement, you know, where over the years we would find here and there just one or two that really got it and saw these individuals through these different lenses and really wanted to help identify these women and not just throw charges on them, but pull them out and get them resources and really target the buyers and the traffickers. So you, we look for champions. Like, it, for example, that case that I mentioned about rehab, thankfully, we had a guy who was our county drug and health Um, drug and alcohol health administrator. And we had a meeting with him and he got it and he found ways that we could um, use funding and kind of get around the red tape. And that those kinds of relationships are everything. It's very much takes networking and collaboration with a variety of resources to then be creative and find ways to together understand these particular complexities and try to find ways to work together to get around them. That's amazing. And as you've gone through trying to establish these relationships, um, what have you found to be kind of the most effective ways to, to I guess, identify those champions? You know, what what is it that that you see the light bulb go off? What does it for those people that helps them go from being maybe just unaware to being an advocate? It's been a long, slow journey of training and awareness events and meetings. And, you know, I can say there were like perhaps a within our first couple of years, we had a meeting with our local district attorney's offices. And we talked about this desire to see this response protocol developed within our county. And a response protocol would really be from the top down, meaning the law enforcement and the district attorney's office were were understanding this and we're putting resources there. We had a community that's informed. They know who to call. We have law enforcement that gets it. They know where to send the victims for services and they're they're working on prosecuting the traffickers. And we have resources for survivors of people who get trafficking and they get trauma. And our district attorney's office, you know, at the very beginning said, we're just really not seeing this as a priority because we just don't see the numbers. We don't see the cases. Last year, we had an event where all these organizations for the first first time came together, we had what was called Lehigh Valley Anti-Trafficking Week. Our county DA opened up that week and talked about how his eyes had been opened and how he was, they, this county was making it a priority 
to address human trafficking. Now that happened over 10 years and it wasn't just our organization that was doing awareness and advocacy. We had a champion in law enforcement who was doing, she was talking cop and she was doing trainings in, uh, for law enforcement and they were starting to believe it and get it. She was starting to get more cases. And then we had in our district attorney's office, we had some of um, the first cases that used our state law for human trafficking within our county DA's office. And so then people were starting to see it. They saw it through these different lenses. So what I can tell you is I think it's awareness. I think it's education, but it, it takes usually more than one time. And I also think the stories of survivors over the years, women that were willing to come forward and start to advocate and start to share their stories, that as you said, a story speaks volumes and gets people attention in a way that statistics do not, or in a way that even a professional coming and doing a presentation does not. I think those stories really made a difference too, because then light bulbs started to go on. Medical workers or therapists or law enforcement started to look back at cases and say, I wasn't getting it. I missed it with that person years ago. And now they have new understanding and new ways to name and identify and therefore respond. So it's it's chiseling away little by little, yes. but you've yes. been able to be persistent and uh, stick with it. And now you're seeing a lot of fruits from those many, many years of, of work. Absolutely. You mentioned the voices of survivors, and I know that's a theme across your work. You also mentioned that that memory work is one of the three... I guess kind of phases of healing that you were talking about, if I'm if I'm quoting you correctly. Yes. Um, and and kind of using narrative to make meaning, and that's that's something that really resonates with me as an occupational therapist and occupational scientist. That narrative is so important, and and through that reflection, we can develop meaning, and even in experiences that are good, bad, ugly, traumatic, um, any type of experience, we can we can look back and, and create a story that helps us understand who we are now, maybe who we are then, so who we were then. So I, I would love to hear more about how you have gone about highlighting and amplifying the voices of survivors, and particularly through your dissertation work, which has been uh, very fruitful and has continued to, um, to just speak volumes even beyond your defense, which is always the sign of a good dissertation. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I was determined that I didn't want my dissertation just to sit on some shelf somewhere or, yeah. you know, be lost on the internet, but I wanted it to make a difference. And so I did choose to focus on my dissertation, um, domestic sex trafficking survivors. The reason for that is it's still a relatively young field. I think we still have far to go with understanding the impact and moving beyond the basics of like human trafficking 101 to the, more of the complexities of what is the long-term impact. And most importantly, hearing directly from survivors. What are they saying? Because a lot of the research out there was service providers or anecdotal and wasn't directly hearing from survivors of how have they been impacted long-term and what was helpful and not helpful after having left the trafficker through this quote-unquote reintegration process. What did they find helpful and not helpful? So I chose to focus on that and I used two methodology. I, I did interviews and I also used something called photo voice, which very much speaks to what you were just describing of using a kind of a narrative approach of amplifying the voices. So photo voice is so powerful because there's three different parts of it. Number one, you have your research participants, whatever they have in common, take pictures to express their lived experiences. 
you then have them come together in group format to share their photos and the captions that go with those photos and, and discuss what do these pictures have in common? What do they see in these pictures? How do they tell the story of their community? And the third part of Photo Voice is they decide together what do they want to do with these pictures as a way to take action, as a way to amplify their voices. So I used Photo Voice with survivors and I was looking through the lens of complex trauma and post-traumatic growth and had them take pictures, not using faces just for ethical reasons, but to share, have have, take pictures to share their experiences of being a survivor. That was really the main prompt I gave them. And they they uh, shared those pictures with captions, then they met together. And then the third piece, I asked them, well, what do you want to do with these pictures? And they said, we want anyone and everyone to see these pictures. We believe these are so powerful. We believe these are a safe way to tell the story of survivors rather than sometimes it can be re-traumatizing or even re-exploiting for them to get in front of a group of people or to be interviewed on the news or something like that. It's difficult. Every time they do that, there's a cost. So they said this is like a, a an anonymous way and a creative way that we can really share both the struggles and the courage and growth and beauty that come out of their experience of survivorship. We want anybody and everybody in every possible way. And so therefore, what I decided to do with my dissertation is create two is two things. Number one, create the Voices of Survivors Project, which is an, a, an exhibit and photo book that highlight the pictures of those six survivors that participated in Photo Voice. And um, pre-COVID, you know, I have a, a transportable exhibit that is available to go to universities or conferences or cafes for awareness type events and that people can walk through and look at all the pictures and captions and kind of have a, a journey experience of, of seeing the photos with their captions of, of the experiences. But I'm also doing some virtual photo exhibits and that so far is going really well. It's very powerful because it gives people the opportunity to, to chat on um, via Zoom and give their comments about what it is they're seeing. And then they all receive a a copy of the photo book, which again is all of the pictures and that, that can be used as an awareness piece, a training piece. So that's the, the main project that's come out of this. I really hope the Voices of Survivors project will become an ongoing photographic expression. Right now we're just highlighting these pictures, but I'm hoping in the future we can do this on a regular basis and have survivors of various forms of violence submit pictures to have it be an ongoing, um, not only a piece of awareness, uh, expression, excuse me, for those who've been through it, to find a way, sometimes artistic expression can speak in ways that words cannot. And it's just, oh, the pictures are so powerful. But I'm also hoping it will be an ongoing form of awareness and advocacy for us all who have not experienced the same type of atrocities to learn from looking up their, their pictures. Then I have a second book that's coming out through Rootledge later this year, and that will be more of an academic book, like a comprehensive book for really any discipline to learn more from the interviews. The pictures will be featured, but also more of the content and data from the interviews um, of what the impact of complex trauma and post-traumatic growth is, as well as what's helpful and not. A couple of things I want to go back to that you were talking about. One is this idea that a photo voice is 
is a methodology that does not exploit the participants further, which I think in research sometimes we're taking from participants and we don't always give. And with some populations, that's fine. Sometimes, I mean, it's not fine to use the word exploitation, but but they're okay with that. You know, I work with stroke survivors and a lot of them say, hey, we don't want anyone else to have the same difficult recovery process we've had. I'm happy to give up my time so that someone later can have an easier recovery than I had, you know, I, I had. And, and so we see that in sometimes people participating in research is just meaningful in and of itself. But I think with more vulnerable populations or people who have these very personal experiences that are, that are hard to share. And, and as you said, there's a cost of sharing. I think that it's so important that these research methodologies also give something to these individuals. And so I love that photo voice, you mentioned it as a form of expression. Yes. And then from there, the, the survivors that you worked with, they chose how that expression was going to be shared with others. And so I think all of that just ties back into what you were sharing earlier about approaches to trauma healing and that it is so empowering and you're, you know, you're giving a voice and you're giving them power and um, they're forming relationships. So I love how this methodology really goes back to the heart of your approach to trauma healing. And I also liked what you mentioned that you're capturing stories that yeah, they capture the trauma and they also capture the healing and the hope and the moving forward. Um, and you you had mentioned, you know, going on the news would be a very, high, you know, high risk, high cost way of raising awareness for some of these individuals. But I also think sometimes in traditional journalism, you capture the part that's the most traumatic or you capture the part that's just going to turn heads and have people turning up their volume. And unfortunately, those are not often stories of hope and they're not often stories of healing. When they are, it's so refreshing and that's what I turn up the volume for. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily what what sells, so to speak. And so I think that this approach, this exhibit that you're providing, these books that you've you've created are ways to just capture a more complete holistic picture of these folks' experiences and um, and, and can bring hope and also show a deep need. So I'm, I'm very excited about this exhibit. Yeah. I thank you so much. And I'm so excited about it. So I really think it's very powerful. And I'm I, the people who have already participated in the first virtual photo exhibit um, just had such positive feedback. Some of them were individuals who are already working with this population and described hmm. that it even really helped reconnect them to empathy for survivors and remind them of, of what's going, the struggle that's going on underneath and as well as build in admiration and be inspired by their courage and their tenacity and their growth and beauty that really come out of their struggle. So it really is a good way for anyone to become more aware of um, the, just the powerful, deep individuals and what they've experienced and grow in empathy, grow in awareness and appreciation. In this project and through these photos, can you share some of the results, some of the themes that emerged that really um, a lot of these women shared and found kind of connectedness with and, and that they really wanted other people to hear? Absolutely. Well, what was so powerful is I told you my theoretical lens was complex trauma and post-traumatic growth. I've already defined complex trauma, but let me briefly mention what post-traumatic growth is. Post-traumatic growth is the idea of someone growing beyond where they were at the point of experiencing trauma. So if resilience is a very common term for us, resiliency, and that's kind of the idea of not to oversimplify resiliency, but bouncing back, coming to the point of where you were before, where post-traumatic growth is growing beyond where you were at that Mm -hmm. point in five particular areas, 
personal strength, new possibilities, relationships, spiritual change, and appreciation for life. So I will say both in my data, but in the pictures, complex trauma and all aspects of post-traumatic growth were, were found. And that was so powerful, especially to see the post-traumatic growth. Like, let me just highlight one small nuanced theme that came out that I, it just made me so excited. And that is this idea that many survivors, both in the interviews and in their pictures, described a deeper appreciation for life the ability to appreciate life and see beauty. In fact, some individuals were actually drawn to the photo voice portion because they found photography to be a a main source of coping and comfort and healing for them and would articulate it was because through photography, you are capturing beauty. And what at one time they felt ugly, they felt invisible, so to capture beauty, it's almost like this, it's that healing, trauma healing is opposite thing we talked about. They're finding beauty is like healing from the darkness and the ugliness of their, the exploitation experience that they had. And I just love that. It's so evident in their beautiful, some of the photos are just absolutely beautiful to see how much they perceive deeply and appreciate deeply things in life, even the small things, the things that we take for granted including the beauty of creation, the beauty of nature. Did you feel like across the photos that kind of the whole spec, uh, an entire spectrum of trauma through to healing to post-traumatic growth was shown? Or do you feel that some people highlighted uh, kind of different parts of that experience differently? I would say they there really was a spectrum. In fact, some were actually intentional about that spectrum and kind of starting with the struggle and the darkness and the difficulty and moving forward to more like hope and renewal and redemption. Mm -hmm. But um, both aspects of struggle with trauma and beauty were there. And I, I think that the, and I'm sorry, growth were there. I think what was powerful is how they were intermixed, which I think gives us a picture of what it's like to be a survivor of trauma. You're moving along, you're moving along, but there's a struggle and there's dark days and there's difficult nights. And I think they're the way the pictures are really like captured and the the way we move through them, you really, you feel that tension and you feel that pull, which is not something I could have ever micromanaged. And it's just a powerful <laughs> thing that's come out of the data for sure. Some of them, I would say, everybody's a little bit different in what they focused on, but you always see both the struggle and the growth in every participant, you see both. Hmm. And I will add one of the other beautiful things that came out of it too, and this was not planned, was I think, let me think, all of them as a part of their healing, it's this is quite common, but found their own their own work of moving forward towards like becoming a survivor leader and being involved in the anti-trafficking movement or in advocacy mm-hmm. work or um, in work, working to raise awareness or working with younger girls, all of them. That, that was this theme as well of moving forward towards leadership and advocacy as a part of their healing journey. Wow. It seems to me who's very unknowledgeable about this, so I don't know how accurate this is, but um, it seems to me it would take a while to get to that point mm-hmm. of being able to re-engage in situations that might trigger trauma. And I just, I'm wondering if you could give me a sense of 
how like temporarily distant a lot of these women were from those actual, you know, traumatic relationships and trafficking experiences. Yeah, I would say years for all of them. It it varies in how soon someone gets involved. And you're absolutely right. It really is up to those who are coming alongside as allies and helping personnel to help them gauge their readiness. Sometimes they uh, sometimes they're actually this was a sad thing that came out in my data is um, kind of brought into sharing their story prematurely, even as mm-hmm. a part of a fundraising effort or something like that. And that was one of the data of just the re-traumatization and re-exploitation that actually happened from helping professionals. So I think we have a responsibility mm-hmm. to help them gauge their readiness, to not push that too quickly. Um, and typically, it, I can't put a timeline on it, but typically it's years before they're at a place where they're really ready to participate in that way. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of just begs the question, you know, you as a healthcare practitioner and someone who's partnering with these, these ladies, you know, at, at what point do you kind of perceive that someone might be ready? You know, you, you mentioned that there's this sort of delicate balance and that you need to really not push too early. Um, what are some of the signs for you that someone has reached a point where they might be willing to and um, safely be able to engage in, in that kind of community work? Yeah, well, first of all, it's it's there. It has to be driven by them in terms of their desire to be an advocate in one way or another or get involved with organization in one way or another. It really has to be their driven by them, it's come out of them. It's their goal or their passion or their desire as opposed to something that we kind of put on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, this is a delicate balance. This is a dance. So mm-hmm. it's very much happens collaboratively um, in that it's not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing for me as a healthcare professional, professional to point out in someone some of their strengths, but to also be very aware of my power and that if I say, hey, so-and-so has asked us, you know, for somebody to come and give a testimony at their event, are you interested? I hold a lot of power. They're coming out of a situation where they didn't have a voice. They didn't know how to speak up. They didn't have space to speak up for their own needs. So getting back to your question, that's first and foremost, is it's really coming from them. I would say some level of like they're out of survival mode in terms of like they have a stable place to live. They know where that they have food on the table. Perhaps they're working. So they're not in that place of instability that is so common amongst survivors. Mm-hmm. They're physical instability. They're they're stabilized in their life situation as much as possible. And I think another thing is, and again, these are just a, this is not this is not a comprehensive readiness checklist, but sure. um another thing would be that they are somehow doing their own trauma healing work and are showing mm-hmm. awareness in that they're showing um, ability to have self-care. They have a support system that they're tapped into and accountable to because trauma healing is ongoing. Someone will tell you they might be out for years and years and years. Something triggers them unexpectedly. So it's an ongoing, like, who is my support system? How am I using them? Whether that's a therapist or a support group or friends, family, mentors, it will look much different. And how am I on on an ongoing basis kind of doing my own healing work and have coping skills that are surrounding me? That self-awareness and those pieces of a safety network are really, really important. Thank you for for sharing that. I think that's really helpful. And one thing that you you mentioned that I I really want to 
I guess emphasize and ask more about is this idea of the power and sort of authority that sometimes we hold as health professionals, but just as, as a person in a professional position Yes, that we might not be, we're not asking for it. Uh, We don't necessarily want it, but it's something that we need to constantly be aware of and that what we say carries so much more weight than we sometimes realize. Uh, And I, I feel like I've talked about this in the past on the podcast too, but just simple things like offhandedly citing a research study regarding, you know, someone I'm working with, you know, some sort of treatment. Oh yeah, there's this study that that showed this benefit moving on. For me, that's just citing one of the many research studies I read every week and I'm very familiar with. But for that person, sometimes they will come back to me and have spent hours digging into this treatment and purchased all this equipment on their own. And I just am kind of shocked. Whoa, I just said one thing about this study, but all of a sudden, because I have that voice that I didn't ask for, but that is is uh, has some sort of power um, and meaning for them that it can really influence people's decision making and participation. Um, and so whenever I have those moments, it kind of just reorients me a lot and reminds me that everything I say is being could be taken uh, differently or with more weight than it maybe deserves. Um, so yeah, so I think that's a really interesting point. And I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that's important for us to be constantly reminded of. It's been a huge lesson for me. Both some of my work globally definitely have learned this lesson as well, but with any kind of individual, any any client, any client that we're working with, yeah. we have power just by them coming to us and being their professional. And how are we wearing, quote unquote, that power? What are we doing with it? And how are we shifting to come alongside them and hopefully in a collaborative approach that empowers yeah. them? And it's been that's been an interesting challenge with this population mm-hmm. simply because they are in many ways so unaware of how powerless they had become. Not that they are, but that they had become in their victimization or exploitation. So being aware of that and how that dynamic comes into play in their interactions mm-hmm. and, and the shame, as I said, that that tends to really stay with them for a long period of time. It's a, it's an ongoing process of working that out and really seeking to have a, um, a collaborative, mutual approach. Do you have any advice for other health providers and just care providers and supporters to keep ourselves in check, other than just kind of reminding ourselves that what we say might carry a little bit more weight and meaning and power. Um, you know, is there any other kind of advice you might have for us about how to how to manage those relationships and, and you know, share power, I guess, if we're going to keep power? Yeah, I think um, I think awareness is huge. I think keeping a student teachable mentality that the individual in front of us represents someone new. She brings, he or she brings with her, her own experiences, her own cultural background. And we don't know her story. She does. So therefore we bring in this expertise, but how do we elevate her to be an expert of her own story, her own situation and amplify her voice just in the questions that we ask? Or the way that we approach giving our medical advice, for example, how do we give options? How do we um, take time to really hear from them? What are their goals? What are their needs? What are their wants? What are their desires? What are their preferences? So I think it's, it's an approach of deferring to their voice and their story. And all of that obviously is inefficient. So it takes time. It may take time to build a relationship and build trust. It may take, it may slow down a session or a meeting that we have, 
um, to really have that type of collaborative, empowering approach. Thank you. I think that that's really helpful. I think to, you know, that focus on the client establishing their own goal is something that's I know really big in, in your discipline as well as, as well as my discipline. Um, and I think that there's a lot of really great reasons, but I don't think the, the reason of sort of giving power and giving expertise to that person, you know, them being the source of expertise and them being the source of, of their own story um, and authority, I think is is a just an amazing reason to let people establish their own goals. But I think that's one of the reasons that's talked about a little bit less when we talk about client-centered goals. So I, I'm really glad we're bringing that to the fore. So I'm thinking about our listeners who are compassionate and amazing occupational therapists mm-hmm. who are hearing what you're saying. Maybe this is um, something that they've been interested in a while and didn't quite know what to do with, um, or maybe for the first time they're hearing that um, human trafficking is is something that's happening in their own community and um, that you know we need to learn more so that we can eventually maybe even take action Um and I'm wondering, you know, can you encourage them if they were to attend the Voices of Survivors exhibit, which I will, of course, be linking to in the show notes, what do you think that they could gain from this experience or learn from this experience that might help inform a little bit more about what to, where to take this, this new desire or, or passion or empathy? Well, I think it's a creative way of them hearing the story of survivors and gaining awareness of the ongoing struggle as well as the strengths and resilience of survivors. And and, you know, as I mentioned before, some who attended just talked about how it built empathy and it built compassion, which I think are all really necessary and important things for anyone who wants to work with this population. So those are the main things that I could say I, I will add to that. And again, I'm hoping as we continue the rest of this conversation, we can even think creatively about how do we engage occupational therapists more with trafficking survivors? Because I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. But I think um, maybe perhaps photo voice or some version of it would be a useful tool for occupational therapists. Mm-hmm. I, I think I found many people got their wheels turning of how do we incorporate more artistic expressions in with the clients that we serve. And um, it brings people together in a way that sometimes words do not. So I'm hoping that it could actually get some creative juices and inspiration flowing as well. It's a great idea because I feel like I hear photo voice a lot as a methodology. I was actually a co-author on a paper that used um, photo voice for uh, college students who are um, veterans from the military. And um, and I, it was so healing and so enjoyable. And people kept taking pictures even beyond the study. And But I some, I don't really hear about it as much as an intervention. And it might just be the the kind of world of OT that I'm in. I'm not in mental health practice. And so it's it's quite possible that, that this is an intervention that's used. I'll have to look more into that. But I, I do love that idea. Um, even kind of beyond, quote, like mental health practice. I think that could be a really great tool that we could use. From your perspective, um, as someone who's very immersed in this community and you have a lot of collaborations, first of all, have you ever worked with occupational therapists? No, I have not. And I became curious, um, you know, as we discussed the idea of this podcast Mm-hmm. Has this happened? And I didn't do thorough online research, but I did come across an article in the journal, American Journal of Occupational Therapy in September 2016. I can even give you the link to it. And this Kathleen Gorman and Bethan Hatkovich said, currently the role of occupational therapy in combating human trafficking is minimal and mm-hmm. unexplored. But 
uh, there's great capacity for having a profound role in both providing client-centered services to victims and survivors of human trafficking. So there is opportunity that I hope we can keep exploring. But for me personally, I am ashamed. It is not something that has (laughs) happened yet. And I would love to think about how to do this further. I agree. I think we should, uh, yeah, we need to find ways to um, to build these collaborations because it sounds like there is so much work to be done and so um, so many different um, individuals and, and perspectives and disciplines that need to come together for, for systems to change, right? Absolutely. For, for that, real change to happen. Mm-hmm. Yes. I cannot emphasize enough that it takes such a comprehensive, holistic approach for survivors. It takes a community approach organizations cannot be the be all end all and they need a little bit of anything and everything and they need a network of of service providers that provide those things and as i said before even some that perhaps are willing to volunteer resources or offer pro bono so i'm just you know really curious to hear how we might be able to do more or if you have people that listen to this and are already doing that i would love mm-hmm. to to learn about them and and get them connected um, with, within the anti-trafficking movement. Yeah. I'd be curious from your perspective, what you identify as current gaps in services and resources for these survivors of, of human trafficking. And I, I would imagine that would depend on the region and the area. I'm sure that some cities and municipalities are responding better and others are not responding at all, but, but oh, globally, I mean, could you give us a sense of what services are missing or, or there's just not enough of? Oh, that's, it is such a hard question because there's just not enough of everything. And mm-hmm. it does also depend on each, each region um, really should do and can do assessments for what services exist and what services don't exist. In general, we have an issue for shelter nationwide mm-hmm. for women. And that includes then shelters that might be trafficking informed or trauma informed. So that have this kind of nuanced perspective of understanding trauma and understanding okay. trafficking. So I would say shelters is all, there's always a need for more places or more creative ways for, for how we can provide housing for survivors. That's mm-hmm. probably one of the number one needs. And yeah. then from there, um, again, I, I don't want to denigrate anything because we need, we need everything. We need counseling, substance abuse. We need life skills training. But another thing that comes to mind are both education and employment opportunities. So education scholarships or opportunities and then employment. Individuals, perhaps businesses, business owners, organizations that would be willing to hire um, survivors, which may include, may or may not include having some type of a record. Now there are legal organizations around the nation that are trying to work with getting some charges expunged that were a part Mm -hmm. of the trafficking. So really it was a part of their victimization versus something that they willingly did. Um, Mm -hmm. but, But getting back to my point, employers that would be willing to invest in training up survivors. Survivors have so many gifts and skills, but they need opportunities and they need perhaps trauma-informed workplaces, places that have an understanding of the ups and downs as they're just kind of getting started and reintegrating back into community. 
So I would say definitely job skills training, helping them develop any kind of any kind of skills training is really, really important and um, and and job opportunities. That's a that's a really interesting opportunity, I think, for more collaboration. I think that um, supported employment is something that a lot of our, a lot of our disciplines work with. But I know it just I can only speak from occupational therapy, so I think there's probably some overlap with social work as well. But you know, anywhere from um, adults who are graduating from or young adults who are graduating from high school who maybe have autism and um, maybe need a little bit of extra support to find that right fit um, in employment or whether it's um, adults with intellectual disabilities maybe um, need a little bit more of that support to find a good fit. And and we uh, definitely work in those environments even when business owners, for example, or um, managers want to hire individuals that maybe um, Again, I'll just use the examples I'm familiar with, but maybe have an intellectual disability, or in this case, maybe um, someone who is a survivor of human trafficking. They want to employ them, but they don't feel equipped. And I think that occupational therapists could help kind of bridge that gap and say, hey, if you hire these individuals, I will help work with them. And I think social workers already do this too, but um, I, I will help work with them to help identify some of the challenges, identify some of the the needs and supports, and then we can provide that. And that way the employer's, you know, happy because they need to employ people that are going to satisfy the needs of the, of the business, but they can also, um, you know, employ people who might otherwise not have um, made, it, made it, even made it to the interview stage or whose resume would have been looked over. Um, so I do think there's probably some opportunities in there for like supported employment and providing that partnership through employment, not just for getting hired, but for kind of managing the day-to-day nuances of being employed. Absolutely. That's that's a great idea. That's a great thought. Just spitballing here, but it seems mm-hmm. like something we could do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering, you, through VAST, um, and I don't think we've talked about the Truth Home for, for Women yet, but that's kind of came out of VAST. Is that right? They both started at the same time. Um, okay. So VAST kind of, we had this idea to do this community coalition at the same time that this organization in our region called Truth for Women wanted to open a shelter for trafficking. Okay. And so we worked we worked together as partners in, in our different kind of ways that we wanted to address trafficking. Okay. So I, I ask about that because I'm, I'm wondering from, from that experience, you know, what are maybe the specific life skills or or job skills that um, you know the Truth for Women Home and Vast were providing to kind of help support these women, you know, and and maybe understanding that better might help me and some of the listeners also start to brainstorm where OTs could help fill some of those needs as well. Very good. Well, again, it's it's so comprehensive, but let me try to make it more specific. So. On a basic level, one would just be coping skills for symptoms of trauma and learning how to how to take care of themselves with the symptoms of trauma, learning other ways mm-hmm. to cope besides using substances or any other self-destructive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's life skills such as perhaps getting a bank account, if you think about it, um, mm-hmm. and learning how to manage money. If you think about it, we didn't really go into some of the details of what it actually means to be trafficked, but an individual may be exploited in one evening and make thousands and thousands of dollars, but she hands that over to a trafficker. 
who may give her McDonald's to eat for dinner. And then he may buy her really expensive clothes and take her to get her nails and hair done. But she sees none of that money. All she knows Mm -hmm. that she could make thousands and thousands of dollars. Then she leaves that lifestyle and may not even have a high school diploma, may not have a college degree, minimum wage. And there's that temptation of, I know, like it's so hard for me to make ends meet and I know how to make that much money, but I have no idea how to manage it. So rebuilding Mm -hmm. a relationship with money, learning how to create a budget and manage money financially, learning computer skills, how to work, um, I mean, how to create an email, how to do Microsoft Word, how to do Excel, sometimes even those types of things, computer skills and learning how to build a resume, interviews, how do you, I mean, just being prepared for what questions that they might ask that may even be triggering and how to navigate that, preparing them for interview, job interviews. Sure. Um, c- cooking, cleaning, how to get at an apartment set up for the first time, all of that, because again, mm-hmm. power was taken away and they were perhaps exposed to a lot, but didn't have the management of those things that they were exposed to. So learning how to manage all of their own stuff, both physically as well as mentally, relationally, emotionally. Yeah. And and from, from things I've heard you say in the past and from just little bits of reading I've done here and there, it also seems that the intra interpersonal interpersonal relationships would be really difficult. Um, I I think in the past, not necessarily during this interview, but I think you've mentioned this idea that when, when folks are, are exploited, sometimes they are really cut off from other people in their lives because I think for the trafficker that would be risky, right? To have the the person they're exploiting have contact with people who are going to give them, you know, truth um, and try to help them. So it would, uh, yeah, I would imagine there's very few individuals that these women have contact with when they're in the midst of being trafficked, and it would be all people who are taking power from them and exploiting them. So to then be out of that situation and people asking you, what are your, what do you want? What are your opinions to all of a sudden be given a voice? I would imagine that'd be really hard to navigate too. And, and just not know what to do with that, that new, um, the, the, the options to have options of how you want to spend your time, how you want to use your money, how you want to engage with the world. I mean, it, it sounds to me like there's not a lot of choice. And then all of a sudden kind of the world is just open and, and that's a lot to, that's a big transition. Yeah, see how I'm nodding my head to everything that you're saying. It's you're you're right on. And it's a lot of transition, the choices, the relationships, and and that you're right. The the trafficker used the tool of trust and saying, You can trust me, but you can't trust anybody else. I'm the only one that will really truly love you and care about you. And for many of them, they have their own adverse childhood experiences that it may have been true. They, they, they had trauma that predated the exploitation and may, and may not really know what love means, what trust and safety look like in a relationship. And so they, they do come out of it really not, not trusting, not knowing who to believe, not knowing how to use their voice, not knowing how to identify what they need. So one of the things that came out of my dissertation study was one of the main things that they've identified as a need and as a source of healing is relationship. For me, Mm -hmm. it's so simple, yet it's so profound. 
because that's something anyone can provide. Anyone can come alongside a survivor and form a relationship and slowly build trust and be somebody who believes in them and helps them reshape mm-hmm. their identity and helps them identify their strengths and their weaknesses and their goals and their dreams. And though that's what they've identified as the most healing and the most helpful. And, it, and that was what also what one of the things that was the most damaged throughout their mm-hmm. victimization. I think relationship is something that we all desire and something we talk a lot about in the world of kind of occupation too are these um, these roles that we have. And a lot of times roles are relational. So someone identifies as a sister or a brother. Well, that role is in relation to that, that role has to do with a relationship or um, a pet owner that has to do with a relationship with a pet or um, as an as an employee, maybe they identify strongly in a role at work, but that role only really exists because there's other people and there's other relationships that have established a need for that role. And so that's something that we, we really see. We see, you know, what are your roles and how do those match up with your identity and your values? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like particularly with, with survivors of trafficking that, you know, it, not only identifying new roles when roles have been just taken from you in the past, but also what are your values? What what is your identity? Because you have choice now and you have yes. freedom to explore those. But that's all. That's a, those are a lot of pieces to put together. Yeah, makes sense of. Absolutely. That's why it's a long, slow journey and really requires a community and a comprehensive approach. I want to shift a little bit because I'm going back to that first thing you said, which was the need for shelter as kind of the main thing. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about what it looks like when somebody comes out of trafficking? And you mentioned a couple different ways. It might be through law enforcement or it might be they were able to escape and through another way. Um, I mean, what happens What happens next? I mean, is there an opportunity for um, hospitalization in in a supportive a place that can provide sort of that counseling in a very safe environment? Or is that not something that's desired? I mean, I mean, so like what happens next? They're out of that um, immediate threat. Uh, what, do, what do they do? What's out there? Yeah, it's very different for every story. One, there really are no, there's no one way that it happens. And, you know, okay. it's kind of keeps us challenged and on our toes. Um, it's rarely somebody coming forward and saying, I am a victim of human trafficking in need of services. Will you help me? They might not even identify as a victim. They might not even identify, they might not even know what sex trafficking is. And that Mm -hmm. over time, they start to understand a little bit more of their situation. So it could be in an emergency room or could be, you know, somebody from our organization meets up with somebody at an outreach team. Our outreach team meets up with somebody at um, a local, you know, place, it's like a, almost like a homeless shelter, but it's kind of like just mm-hmm. a community center. You, it, you have conversation and then you start to hear things that, that identify need. And then slowly they might really say, I want, I want out. I want to get out. So sometimes they get out because of a law enforcement situation where they're, they were arrested or the trafficker was arrested and then they're identified as a victim. And sometimes it happens that they just kind of get caught up with somebody who may be a door and a, a way out. Um, there are resources for individuals to go. There are shelters that exist. Um, there are short-term shelters. There are more longer-term programs, like residential programs, therapeutic programs. Many often do need some type of substance abuse treatment. So that might be the mm-hmm. first thing that they go and get some time in rehab. And then from there, if they're 
quote unquote lucky and get connected to a local organization that's whether it's a trafficking coalition or a victim services agency, they may get connected with resources such as a shelter and a women's program or counseling, but they may not. They may drift, you know, in and out and not really get connected with those resources. So every journey and every story is so different. Mm -hmm. And some, it's a little bit more streamlined in terms of like law enforcement connections with services and others, they might just fall onto services, fall into services. Mm. So that sounds like a big challenge there because there's no one or two paths out of trafficking. Um, That's correct. You kind of have to be creative with all the different ways that um, you promote and advertise and provide services. Yes. So I wonder then... If, you know, people who are interested in even just maybe, I want to get to the training piece in a moment, but even folks who are interested in just maybe starting by volunteering or providing services, you know, pro bono, do you think reaching out to women's shelters would be potentially a good starting point once they feel like they're a little bit more equipped and trained? Um, Because we don't want to, you know, we don't want to do more harm by trying to get involved. You know, where where would you recommend people reach out? Yeah, I would... um... I agree with you. First and foremost, just kind of becoming a student and learning more. Um, But then Google human trafficking organizations and see what they come up with in their region. Anyone can also call the National Human Trafficking Hotline number, and that might be able to connect them with resources in their area, but um, also local victim services agencies. So most counties, if not every county, has like a rape center and the domestic violence center. And those might be places to start. Some organizations really are aware of trafficking. They have training. They have understanding. They have those clients that coming are coming in. Some might not really understand. But yeah, local human trafficking coalitions looking for shelters and programs and victims agencies are good places to start just to say, how, how can I get involved? How can I volunteer? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's really helpful. Cause I, I just have a feeling, you know, we've talked about a couple of the different ways that I think someone with, you know, a particular experience in occupational therapy would be really, you know, well-equipped to, to support. But, um, I also can imagine there's people listening who just have their, their gears are just turning and they've got lots of ideas that we haven't, you know, even t- touched on yet of ways that they could use their skill set within occupational therapy to support survivors. So I just want to, yeah, I just want to make sure that we have ways that we can take that ambition and those ideas and kind of move forward. Um, so, okay, I love those ideas of reaching out to local organizations because it seems like a lot of this is happening on the local community level. And while yes. there's maybe laws in place, um, it doesn't seem like enforcement necessarily always happens. And when it does, it's not always done in a way that supports the victim. That's that, right. Would that be accurate? That's accurate. And it, it's a it's a work in progress. Some regions uh-huh. are growing faster than others. So I don't want to denigrate that there are a lot of law enforcement and legal services that are doing amazing work, but it's a work in progress. Sure. I want to mention another resource, healtrafficking.org, that is a kind of has a public health perspective in addressing human trafficking and very much um, is for the medical, medical professionals, medical field. And you can join their listserv and, and be networked with other people Again, multidisciplinary, but with a very much a medical mm-hmm. emphasis and research okay. is pumped out. And what I would love, again, I would just love if there are people that are listening, that their, their wheels are turning and ideas are flowing to somehow reach out, whether it be to me, to heal trafficking or to local organizations, 
to find ways to get involved because I really think that this is untapped potential. And I would love to see in heel trafficking, there be like a sphere of occupational therapists that are getting involved and then kind of infiltrating with some of the other uh, disciplines that are represented in heel trafficking. Mm. I would love to see that too. I think this is just such an, yeah, like you said, an exciting untapped uh, area and, um, we all just, all of our disciplines bring so much to the table. And when we, when we all work together, I think that's where we see so much beauty and progress. Absolutely. Um, and when we can actually form those teams well and communicate what each of us can bring and where each of us needs more support. Um, I think that that's just where good things happen, but we first have to get connected. <laughs> yes. So I think that's a good first step. What would you recommend to someone who doesn't have training with survivors of trafficking, maybe they don't even have training in trauma um, and trauma healing. You know, what would you recommend? Are there any particular trainings or um, just recommendations you might have uh, for someone who wants to learn more? Yeah, uh, good question. I um, There are so many different kinds of trainings out there. Um, personally, I can even share a link to some trainings that are on YouTube that I've done that are accessible to anyone that would give people a broad overview. Um, and I, I always think just reading books is good. So particularly with human trafficking, there are some great books written actually by survivors that also interweave different important concepts. Um, Rachel Moran has written a book called Paid For. Rachel Lloyd has written a book called Girls Like Us. Those are two of my favorite go-to books of kind of learning more because there's something about hearing from survivors. It's like you're, you're sitting at their feet and just listening to them really share from their, not just their experience, but their expertise. And uh, they are really the subject matter professionals um, that we should be learning from, subject matter experts that we should be learning from. So, um, yeah, I would say those are some of my go-tos. And trauma, Judith Herman, is, is she's a pioneer and an expert. Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score, might be an OT. Oh. I, OTs might already be knowing it. He's, you know, he's pumping out some really great work that I would you know, encourage anyone to look into. Mm, thank you for those. I'll link to all of those in the show notes. I think that's a great starting point because anyone can pull up YouTube and just kind of learn a little bit more. So I, I think that's always a great starting point. Uh, and they can also attend the virtual exhibit. And can you remind us of the upcoming dates and times? And I'll, of course, link to the 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 site where they can purchase tickets. Absolutely. Yeah, so my next two exhibits are February 22nd. It's a Monday evening, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then Saturday, March 6th, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Would love to have you join. If you join, you walk through the full exhibit of all of the pictures from all of the participants. You receive a copy of the book. And there will also be proceeds that will be donated to two organizations, one here in the USA and one in Rwanda that are working with trafficking survivors. If someone doesn't want to attend the, the virtual exhibit, they can just order the book on my website, voicesofsurvivorsproject.com and follow on social media for upcoming events, Voices of Survivors Project. My, the virtual exhibit is also available um, to come to organizations. Uh, the transportable exhibit would be available, but also virtual. So if 
there are people listening that have an interest in doing some type of awareness event for their organization or their community, they can also reach me on my website and I would be glad to talk with them about making that happen. I think even starting out with signing up for the virtual exhibit and then receiving that book and just bringing that into the workplace um, and just having that as a conversation piece um, to get other people interested because many of us do work on interdisciplinary teams or we work with other therapists and to have that out in the workplace and people say, well, what's this all about? And start to kind of page through and and read some of these stories, um, I think would be a great way to get these conversations going in our immediate professional communities, but also in our kind of personal communities. I think could be a yeah, really great way to spread the word and also tap into other, you know, other individuals who, who just don't know right now that this is an issue, but then they can kind of see that they have skills that could also support healing. And so I think that's a great way just for advocacy, you know, and, and more learning. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So I think we've gotten a few book recommendations from you, but I also want to return and I'm going to link to all of this, but I also want to return to the book you have coming out soon through Yes, I do also have a book coming out this year with Rutledge. It's kind of a long title, Understanding Complex Trauma and Post-Traumatic Growth in Sex Trafficking, Foregrounding Survivors' mm-hmm. Voices for Effective Care and Prevention. That's mm-hmm. going to be more of a comprehensive book that really walks anyone through understanding all of the aspects of human trafficking, particularly the impact on survivors and what they have described as being most helpful or not helpful. Um, And that is broken down into, into sections as well for medical professional, community members, family members, faith-based communities. So yeah, people can be looking out for that as well. I would say if they follow me on social media, then when that book is released at some point this year, then they can find out more about that. And I think this also might be good. I know there's a lot of educators that listen as well, people who are educating in occupational therapy departments uh, in academic institutions. And I wonder, too, if that would be a really great book to include in the course content. I absolutely agree, yes. I mean, it's it's for, while it focuses on trafficking, I think it really will be informative for any kind of trauma. And so it really um, is a comprehensive book that would address any kind of trauma and really understanding its impact and how to approach an individual. Yes, I would Mm -hmm. agree. That's good. And the way you talked about that it incorporates first-person perspectives and experiences and stories is something I think is missing from a lot of resources that are used in classroom environments. Um, so it's much more kind of like your classic textbook, but but it sounds like this book will really tap into that client-centeredness that we talked about and valuing narrative, um, which I think is something that our disciplines share. This idea, this idea that people's stories matter and the subjective experiences is just as valuable, if not more valuable in many cases than objective observations. Um, and so I, I'm excited that this book is going to be incorporating evidence-based research done from a researcher perspective, from participant observer perspective, and also from just individuals who have firsthand experience of complex trauma. Um, And I think it's when we have all of those different voices together that we actually can learn the most and be the most helpful. Thank you. I'm really hoping it's helpful. And the most most excitedly is that the survivors' voices are going out. And that's really what I desire is to honor their perspectives and to learn from them. I think what I'm most curious about is if people do have ideas and ways for OT to be incorporated. Would love for us to have a 
broader conversation about that so that we can we can um, definitely utilize what you bring to the table. I hope you enjoyed this episode of OT Uncorked. If you have ideas of how OTs can play a greater role in supporting trafficking survivors, find OT Uncorked on Instagram or Twitter at OT Uncorked and let's strike up a conversation. If you know of OTs already engaged in this work, let me know. I'd love to hear what you do and how our profession can better contribute to the work you're already doing. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It's always fun to sit down with you and uncork OT with a glass of wine. Cheers! Cheers!